The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to extend a special welcome to members of our armed forces who are tuning in over the Internet and to new listeners who are just discovering us on the dial. We had 30,000 new folks join us on Facebook last week. So uh, the word that you really can find, nonpartisan reporting on talk radio, is spreading fast. And isn't that a good sign? In just a moment, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Mr. Henry Cisneros, will be joining us to talk about a renaissance that is occurring in American cities and how real estate investors and residents alike are benefiting. He'll also weigh in on why HUD Secretary Julian Castro is at the top of Hillary Clinton's list of candidates for vice presidential running mate. But before Mr. Cisneros joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Henry Gabriel Cisneros was born in San Antonio, Texas, to parents who were the descendants of early Spanish settlers to the United States. Cisneros received his undergraduate degree from Texas A&M, his master's from Harvard, his doctorate from George Washington University, and he has been awarded 20 more honorary doctorates from other universities. He also served as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army. At age 27, Henry Cisneros became the youngest city councilman in San Antonio's history. He served three terms before becoming mayor of San Antonio in 1981. And after four successful terms, retired to private practice, he founded the Cisneros Asset Management Company. Then in 92, President Clinton appointed Cisneros Secretary of the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, where he's credited with revitalizing many of the nation's failing housing developments working tirelessly on urban renewal in 200 cities in all 50 states. After leaving HUD, Mr. Cisneros became the chief operating officer for the fifth most watched television network in the country, Univision, and then returned to San Antonio to City View, one of the nation's top investment firms focused on urban real estate and infrastructure development. In addition to meeting the growing needs of urban life, Cisneros also finds time to sit on the board of the San Antonio Chamber of Commerce and co-chair the National Commission on Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, as well as author several best-selling books on urban development, including his most recent, Urban Real Estate Investment, A New Era of Opportunity. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, the man who has been described as the, quote, preeminent Hispanic leader of our time, Mr. Henry Cisneros. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Cisneros. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Uh, You are blessed not only to have a nationally syndicated program, but you live in one of the most beautiful parts of America uh, and and emanate from there. So uh, you have a good life. Well, I I do indeed. Uh, And as you know, California is one of those places that always seems to be growing and is always challenged by urban development. Um, as you know, uh, the, the largest human migration in the history of mankind is currently underway, yet we hear almost nothing about this phenomenon. So I thought, before we dive into why it's critical to invest in urban centers, you could talk a little bit about the shift. Uh, well, it is true that for the first time in the history of mankind, the first time in recorded human history, more people live in urban areas around the world than live in rural areas. Most of the population of the world heretofore has lived in agricultural, agrarian economies, subsistence economies, in countries in Asia and Africa and all over Latin America, all over the world. And now people have migrated to these great urban metro centers 
It is the makeup of the new global economy that is more urban in character. People are coming for the jobs. And I think the, the question is, Will this be better for mankind? Is it possible to imagine a, an urban future where people can work, live, trade, worship, gather, recreate in places that ha- are conducive to good quality human lives? And, and that's the challenge before us. We have to make this moment of urban opportunity, of demographic change, a positive thing all around the world. Now, you mentioned one of the uh, motivators for moving into these urban centers, and and I want to point out, this is a mass migration. This is a sea change in human history. So so what what other reasons would people have to migrate to cities? Well, I, I think that the first and foremost is the global economy has changed, and, and so there's more uh, jobs that are associated with the uh, the the agglomeration of people in metro settings, uh, services jobs, hospitality and touristic jobs, international trade jobs, business and professional jobs, new media jobs, biomedical and 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 uh, and biosciences jobs, technology related jobs. That is the way the the world economy is shifting, virtually in every part of the world. At least the uh, more modern parts of even uh, nations that are still regarded as third world. So people are going there for the work, but they're also going there because of safety. They feel that, that uh, uh, you know, they, they're, they're, they're better taken care of with uh, organized police forces as opposed to in far-flung rural areas. They're going there because of health. They think that they can have better access to health services than in subsistence economies out in rural settings. And I think they're going there because of basically a sense of opportunity. There's a better chance that they can raise their families and raise their children in these urban settings. Now, obviously, the conditions vary all around the world. We're talking about things as diverse as the favelas in in Rio de Janeiro, for example, uh, or or the the townships that still surround the South African cities, uh, or worse conditions even in Africa, in the Philippines, in, in, in uh, China. Uh, but there is clearly a hope and a sense on the part of many, many governments as well as people that there's a better life to be had in workable urban settings. Well, I'm glad you brought up that they're seeking opportunity because according to a journalist Doug Saunders, many of the people who migrate from poorer rural areas to urban centers initially set up housing on the outer edges of the city where the, the land and the housing is cheap. Have you observed that phenomena as well? Oh, 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 absolutely. I mean, if you go around the world, you don't have to go that far from our country just to some Mexican cities in Mexico City itself and see what they call satellite cities of a million people. These are not small places. These are a million human beings gathered in places that they have subdivided frequently with only primitive electricity, only primitive water extensions, transportation that's poor, uh, housing that, 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 that's uh, very ramshackle, and uh, uh, so, yes, there are massive problems associated with this migration if the cities are not prepared and, and if the economy can't sustain it. I serve uh, as vice chairman of Habitat for Humanity International, uh, which is an American-initiated effort, started about 40 years ago, and has now built over a million homes or dealt with a million families' housing needs around the world. And it's a stunning window into what's needed and what could be done. Housing is so important because it is the platform for everything else that these societies want for their people. It's hard to imagine people, for example, being able to think in terms of their children's education, uh, concentration on their schoolwork, or individuals preparing themselves for the workplace, or even basic health and sanitation if the question of where are we going to live hasn't been settled. So housing comes very early in the calculation. And when you see these satellite cities, the housing conditions are primitive at best. 
Yes, and as you point out, there is not going to be any stability in these satellite cities, which many of these satellite cities that are impoverished, where the early arrivals into the urban centers uh, do settle, um, if you don't make the investment necessary in these satellite cities, um, there can be no stability. And uh, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment. It actually turns out that that this is where insurrection begins in the satellite yep. cities where there is no development. We're going to have to take our first break. When we come back, we'll find out a little bit about how investors can capitalize on urban development. You're listening to the Costa Report. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious, but some of the most powerful disease-fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes, from salads to desserts and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouth-watering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry-cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli. Scott, as Caraccioli's become much more popular throughout the world, have you scaled up production? No, we're always going to stay small. We make about 3,500 cases total a year. About 1,000 of those are still wine. About 2,500 of them are sparkling wine. And we only make two sparkling wines, a Brut Rosé and a Brut Cuvée. And really being able to focus on such a small set of wines in our portfolio and two varietals gives us the opportunity to really perfect what we're doing and develop programming that doesn't get distracted and is really just focused on exactly what we want to produce which is vintage method champenois bubbles out of the Santa Lucia Highlands year after year. Let our knowledgeable staff introduce you to Caraccioli Sparkling and Still Wines at our tasting room on Dolores Street in Charming Carmel-by-the-Sea. To learn more, visit us online at C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I-Cellars.com or give us a call at 831-622-7722. Hi, registered pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. Of all the substances that are required for the functioning of the human body, none is more critical than oxygen. Without essential nutrition, we can live for months. Without water, we can probably survive for three or four days, but without oxygen inspiration, our expiration is inevitable within mere minutes. One of the more interesting responses to oxygen deprivation involves fat cells. Known as adipocytes, these cells initiate various coping strategies to deal with their inability to obtain oxygen. One of these strategies involves becoming impervious to the signals of the fat storage hormone insulin. This phenomenon known as insulin resistance unfortunately leads to large surges in the secretion of more insulin, which will eventually result in a dramatic increase in the size of fat cells and ultimately in weight gain too. In other words, less oxygen means more fat. What's worse, scientists are exploring the possibility that chronic inflammation, immune system breakdown, cell disease, and death may also be the result of oxygen-deprived fat cells. If you can't just seem to lose the weight, no matter how many calories you cut, supplements you've swallowed, or miles or time that you've spent on the treadmill, it's possible that you're dealing with oxygen deficiency. Try practicing slow, deep breathing on a regular basis. And because plants produce oxygen as a byproduct of their natural chemistry, making sure you've got lots of greenery in the house can also be helpful. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Health.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Welcome back to the Costa Rica. 
Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Secretary of HUD, Mr. Henry Cisneros. Now, there's a great deal of evidence to support the idea that when a society invests in these poor satellite cities on the outskirts of town by building affordable housing, schools, hospitals, public transportations, uh, that the new arrivals and their offspring assimilate smoothly into urban life uh, and to actually become the middle class. And on the other hand, uh, left to deteriorate, there's evidence uh, that the satellite cities become hubs for frustration, violence, upheaval. From this perspective, urban development seems to provide a, a way to transition from rural to urban life for those that are now migrating. Can, can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I think you've got it exactly right. I mean, that's the right set of choices. That's the right sequence. Um, again, housing and a decent place to live is the beginning because then we can work on the other aspects of social progress, education, health strategies, training for employment, actual employment, uh, and, 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 and a sense of fitting into the society and beginning to absorb the social mores of citizenship and civic involvement. So that's the progression that one would seek in those settings. You're right that the failure to achieve that poses a breeding ground for uh, disengagement, for disaffection, for um, revolutionary movements and so forth in places around the world. At a minimum, organized crime of the kind that has beset countries like Brazil, for example, out of the really severe slums that exist in Brazil. So uh, this is a, a critical set of issues. We see the disaffection, for example, in places like Nigeria. Mm-hmm. in some of the satellite cities of millions of people that uh, have bred uh, 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 religious sectarian uh, grievances. So, uh, you know, it, as I said earlier, uh, the challenge of our time, among others, we have climate change and, and, and economic progressions and, and a lot of, you know, things to work on. But one of the challenges of our time, for sure, is making this movement to urbanization a positive thing for humanity. Now, you have to remember that the good old days weren't always so good. People lived on subsistence uh, crops. Uh, There were high levels of malnutrition, high levels of disease, uh, high levels of infant mortality, early uh, deaths from from shortened longevity uh, in adults, uh, and uh, its own kind of breeding ground for disaffection and revolu- revolutionary movements over land tenure, uh, over uh, discrimination in the work in the in the in the ag- agrarian workplace. So it wasn't exactly ideal before. This should be progress, but the challenge for societies around the world is to make it so. Now. To this point, we've been talking about the global situation, and 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 I I think we've, you know, kind of described accurately what exists. Yes. The United States has a different set of issues, and that is that that um, we too are becoming dramatically so an urban nation. Uh, my former chief of staff at HUD, Bruce Katz, who's now at the uh, Brookings Institution, wrote a seminal book in which he described the metropolitan revolution globally, but also within the United States. We are now clearly a metropolitan nation. We're a country driven by the engines of the economy that reside in our greatest cities. In just the 100 largest American metros live 65% of the American population. And that 65% of the population produces 75% of the GDP. And 78% of the research and the uh, patents and the technological breakthroughs in our society. So we clearly have adapted our economy to these sort of new rising industries, and most of them tend to be urban, tend to be metropolitan. And so we have this phenomenon of the the East Coast metropolis, that begins in Boston and runs through New York and Philadelphia and down through Washington, uh, augmented by an additional East Coast concentration in the Florida big metros. And then on the West Coast, there's this string of pearls that runs from 
Seattle to Portland to San Francisco to Los Angeles to San Diego. You could even in turn, take a turn and include Phoenix in that grouping that, that, that drives the, the Western economy of the United States. And then there's Chicagoland and all of the metros in the old industrial heartland that relate to Chicago, Milwaukee, Indianapolis, many others. And, and then there's the Texas Triangle of Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, that is emerging as as powerful a complex as any of the others that I've mentioned. So even in the United States, we have to think differently about the role and our our national government's relationship to our metropolitan centers. Yes. Now, in your recent book, you use certain metrics to determine which cities actually make the best candidates for real estate development and renewal and, and which are mixed and which are less favorable. So could you tell us a little bit about the criteria you used? Well, I really borrowed from other surveys and other analysts who weighed things like job growth, uh, migration into the cities, uh, the rate of uh, the, the, the amount of real estate activity, uh, more traditional measures like educational attainment, uh, age of the population, if it's younger, a better chance of household formations and growth going forward. So a whole lot of you know, sort of more traditional metrics. But the result was it was possible to group cities into, you know, the strongest and highest prospects for positive real estate investment. Those that are positive, but but in a second tier, then those that are not as strong and lean toward negative statistics. And finally, those that are the worst hit, that were hit hardest by the recession and the slowest to come out. And in there, you find a mix of cities, obviously Detroit and cities like Cleveland that have been hit hard by the industrial downturn now for several decades, but also places that just got really hurt by the real estate turndown, like Las Vegas and Sacramento. So that's an interesting mix. On the other end of the spectrum, the fastest growing places, the best opportunity places, are cities like Austin and Dallas and uh, my own hometown of San Antonio is doing very well. Places like Nashville are doing very well at the moment. Um, uh, and, and, and then other places in the West, like Denver, that's come back strongly from the uh, recession. So it's a, it's a really interesting, uh, really interesting mix. But it's instructive only insofar as, you know, one wants to think about the, the certainty of investing in, in urban settings. But I would make the argument that uh, there's going to be huge opportunities, and I do in this book, there's going to be huge opportunities for the long haul for people who want to shape their profession, whether it's architecture, design, building, urban finance, you know, housing finance, commercial projects, huge opportunities for people who want to build the American city. Because all of them, whether they're coastal, on the East Coast, West Coast, or in the heartland, all of our major cities are going to have better days ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to take a short break, but uh, stay right where you are. We'll be back with more from Henry Cisneros. You're listening to the Costa Report. Have you checked out the Costa Report blog yet? Well, what are you waiting for? There's no quicker way to find out what newsmakers are saying than the Costa Report blog at RebeccaCosta.com. It's where the former CEO of Apple and PepsiCo, John Scully, predicts where the next tech breakthroughs are going to come from. And also where Trent Lott explains why a GOP reversal of the Senate nuclear option will signal real change in our nation's capital. And the Costa Report blog is where you'll discover why Alan Dershowitz is worried that ISIS is adopting Hamas-like tactics. You'll find all this and more at the Costa Report blog. A new blog is posted every week, and they're short, pithy, and tell the unvarnished truth. Just go to RebeccaCosta.com to get the latest blog. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And while you're there, be sure to register for updates and breaking news. The Costa Report blog bringing you the news the big networks don't and won't. 
There is a solution to every problem you face, and you can find that solution in divine love. Join your friends for an inspiring talk about how the healing power of God's divine love can transform every aspect of your life. This free talk by Christian Science lecturer Jose de Dios Mata will take place in English Saturday at 3 p.m. at the United Methodist Church at Number 1 Soledad Drive in Monterey, and in Spanish Sunday at 4 p.m. at La Villa Restaurant on Broadway in Seaside. For details, call the First Church of Christ Scientists, Monterey, 372-5076. 372-5076. For the last 60 years, Coast Paper and Supply has been serving locals and businesses for all their cleaning and paper supply needs. With an 1,800-square-foot showroom and nearly 5,000 products, you'll find everything you're looking for in the way of janitorial supplies, retail and industrial packaging, and disposable food service products for business or home, not to mention their huge selection of boxes and shipping supplies. Their family-owned and operated business is located at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz. Call 831-423-3350 or visit Coast Paper Supply Inc.com, a proud member of Think Local First. Is your computer running real slow like this? Or are you getting the blue screen of death? Do you have to do a restart several times a session? Tired of viruses, spyware, malware, and slow, worthless tech support? Face it, it's too late to download another free PC fix-it program, thinking it'll be restored to out-of-box purity. Oh, no, 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 no. You need the fast, friendly computer pros at User-Friendly Computing. Just drop it off at their office at 505 River Street across from the Gateway Plaza or give them a call at 831-423-9653 and they'll come to you. Mention KSCO and get a free $50 diagnostic. PC or Mac, desktop or laptop, they can do it all at User-Friendly Computing. Call 831 831- Four two three nine six five three. Do you have a plan for your money? Does your money come and go like the tides? Do you just leave your finances to fate? Cash is always flowing, money is always moving, and if you don't manage it, it will move away from you. So many people actually spend more time planning their next trip to the dentist than they do something even more important like their retirement. You know what they say, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Don't leave your financial future to fate. Take charge. Listen to Money Moves every Thursday at 7 p.m. here on KSCO AM 1080. Money Moves is dedicated to providing you tips and tools so you can manage your own money effectively. No one cares about your money more than you do. Therefore, you need the skills to manage your money. Listen to Money Moves every Thursday at 7 p.m. here on KSCO AM 1080. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is former U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and Mayor of San Antonio, Texas, Mr. Henry Cisneros. And before the break, you were pointing out that uh, some of the criteria that you use to rank cities um, that are the best prospects for real estate investment and also the least attractive uh, have to do with, uh, you know, employment, growth, education, a lot of demographic data. So uh, let's let's talk about a, a city like Detroit. Are some cities destined to collapse and go away because they, they just didn't adapt quickly or successfully enough? Well, that's a very, very interesting question as you've posed it. Um, I, I stand among those who say we cannot afford to lose an American city. And so when we had circumstances in the country like Katrina and New Orleans, the whole country mobilized to try to bring New Orleans back, and it's been a pretty good story, from better schools to investment in the new neighborhoods that have been created to a reformation of public housing. Actually, Louisiana and New Orleans have taken the opportunity to use that tragedy to bring themselves back from the brink. Now, Detroit, interesting case. Detroit is not a natural disaster like Katrina, but it was an economic disaster. The bankruptcy of General Motors, which was only the tip of the iceberg, because what really prompted that was decades of decline of the automotive sector, American automotive manufacturing in the United States. Detroit once used to have 15 automobile plants, 
and now it's a, it's down to about three within the city limits, and then others out in the suburbs or that have moved to the south or moved offshore. So Detroit is the victim of a slower but equally devastating disaster, an economic disaster in that case. And yet, even a case, even a city as hit hard as Detroit uh, has begun the comeback. And it's an interesting thing about our American, you know, entrepreneurial and enterprise system. There's always hope. There's always life. So what is Detroit's principal argument for economic activity today? We have land. We have space. We have buildings. We have low rents. Come and locate your business in Detroit. And lo and behold, it's actually happening. Companies like Quicken Loans have bought over 50 buildings in downtown Detroit. And incubators are sprouting up out of uh, inexpensive old factory space converted into loft space and incubator space for new small businesses and young people from all over the country who couldn't afford rents in Silicon Valley or New York are gravitating to, to Detroit. It's not a tidal wave yet, but it's a very discernible, notable trend that is quite positive. And not only is it Detroit, but it's Cleveland where they're building on the base of the Cleveland Clinic and building a biomedical and medical devices manufacturing sector. And it's places like Youngstown, Ohio, which is one of the first in the country to devise a strategy for downsizing. They said, look, it's clear we're not going to be the same city we were. We're not going to have the same manufacturing jobs we did. So let's rationalize the use of our space and find new appropriate uses. They're becoming more of a distribution center for the entire Midwest, for example, using old warehouse space and converting it to the new logistics of, of warehouse-related manufacturing, I mean, uh, distribution. So, you know, anybody that's got a will and wants to use the basic laws of supply and demand, you know, as the demand for the space declined in Detroit, the prices for land went down to almost nothing. You could pick up land, you could pick up buildings, and now they're being restructured and recast for the next generation of small businesses. Now, Detroit is not going to be what it once was, 2 million people at its prime. It's down under 800,000 now, so it's less than half the size that the city of Detroit was. And that means a lot of vacant space, and it means a lot of vacant land, but Detroit is going to, going to survive and, and going to come back in some form. Now, when you became mayor of San Antonio... Uh, that city was not in particularly good shape. You were able to turn that situation around. So if you had one piece of advice to uh, give a mayor of a major city, which is not prospering right now, it, despite this, the greatest migration to urban areas that, that's underway, um, what would you put at the top of your list that they should jump on right now? Well, I, I would say if, if I had to divide, you know, devolve to one piece of advice, it would be, Think in practical economic terms about what function your city provides in the larger American economy and network of cities. Everybody does something and does something that they can do well. So think about what that is and build off of that and gear all of the rest of your policies, tax policies, land policies, training policies, educational policies, uh, urban transportation strategies. Build it all around building up your economic base because cities fundamentally have to be sound economic places. They're economic organisms. They have to have a way to, to sustain their people, pay wages, and, and, and work economically or they fade away. So it, it, it's time to be thinking in sort of clear economic terms about what our cities do in the new economy. And by the way, it is a new American economy. It is no longer a manufacturing-based economy. It is a business services economy. It's an international trade economy. It is a technology economy. It is a biomedical economy. Uh, it is a transportation and hospitality economy. So where do you fit in that spectrum? What do you do uniquely as against the other cities of your region and of the country? Well, let's take that advice for a moment and, and try to apply it to a city like Vegas, 
which uh, we agreed earlier, has been very heavily hit. The housing market was completely destroyed in Vegas. It, I think for three or four years, it was the fastest growing city in America. Uh, how, how do you apply that advice to Vegas? Well, I think it's pretty pretty straightforward in that case. In fact, I was asked by the mayor of Las Vegas to come there about six months ago and do a presentation to a city council retreat with their city staff on precisely that question. You know, where for Las Vegas? What's the future of Las Vegas? And the truth of the matter is that Las Vegas probably doesn't prosper in terms of its own people, its own residents, if it follows the model of the gaming industry and that alone. That it's a strong asset to have, and there's an awful lot of money spent there, but that money circulates within the Las Vegas economy as people who work in the casinos, people who work in the restaurants. It's not the highest wage jobs, very transient, etc. So they've got to figure where, how, do we, how do we harness that and make it link into the larger American economy. They've, they've got real opportunities in technology because they have a good university there at university at UNLV. Mm-hmm. They have, they're close to Silicon Valley. They, they, there's, there's spillover activity that can happen. There's a, a positive setting in which technology companies can be attracted and huge interest on the part of international investors. People come to Las Vegas to play, but they can be enticed while they're there to think about seriously investing there in startup companies, in technology companies. Very interesting. Senator Reed of Nevada has made Las Vegas and Nevada into a center for the next uh, energy economy, yes. for alternative energy because of the desert, because of the heat. It's a good place to do solar, but it's also a good place to do a lot of other experimentation with energy. And so you've got one of the most robust breakthrough energy startup climates uh, in the country in Nevada. And that's an opportunity for Las Vegas. So as I said, Everybody's got an edge. <laughs> there we go. You just got to find it. You got to find it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? And we didn't even get to the tax benefits of doing business in Nevada, which are uh, quite sure. attractive as well. And we have to take our final break, but stay where you are. When we come back, we're going to switch gears for a moment and find out why Mr. Cisnero says another HUD secretary may be Hillary Clinton's vice presidential running mate. You're listening to the Costa Report. <laughs> If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way. If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right. I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and drag and 
drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most impressive thing about Tableau is that anyone can use it. And just to prove the point, you can get a free 14-day trial from Tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad. But do it now, because this offer won't last. For your free 14-day trial, visit Tableau at tableau.com slash Costa. That's tableau.com slash Costa. Tableau Software. What's your data trying to tell you? Is your internet connection slow? Do you experience outages or dread calling customer support? How about your latency? Etheric Networks can help you. Etheric Networks is the Bay Area's locally owned alternative to DSL satellite and cable. Etheric provides fast, reliable, symmetric internet via our wholly owned network of towers covering the Bay Area from Salinas to Santa Cruz to Sausalito. We install a two-foot dish on your building and point it to one of our towers to connect you directly to the major data centers of Silicon Valley. Etheric directly connects to Tier 1 companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon to ensure high-quality service from your building to the world. KSCO Business Special. Business service up to 10 megabits per second symmetric for as little as $299 a month with a $399 installation fee. Etheric also offers high-end 100 megabit and even gigabit and 10 gigabit service starting at $599 a month with installation starting from $500. Etheric Networks. Call 650-399-4200. Etheric.net. That's E-T-H-E-R-I-C dot net. Who's Kelly? Who is this? And are they alive or dead? Well, I guess it would be weird if they're all one or the other. I'm sure some of them are dead. Who is this, though? Who is it? Yes, yes. Who, who? is Who? Who? Oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, the Who. It's the Who. So whose birthday is it? Someone, a band member of the Who, guess whose birthday it is. Well, you already told me. I know, but, God, you're supposed to pretend like you don't know just for the... So I'm supposed to sound smart? Yes. Don't miss the afternoon know-it-alls, Dave, Kelly, and Ben on Flight 1080, weekdays 4 to 7 on KSCO AM 1080. The challenge, the exhilaration, and the struggle of opening a business in Santa Cruz. Hi, this is Matthew Swinnerton from the Think Local First radio show. Join me every Saturday from 2 to 3 o'clock on KSCO. Each week, we will introduce you to three local business owners that are making an impact on our community. Wait to hear what some of these business owners have to say. So tune in every Saturday, 2 to 3 o'clock, on your local news station, KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Henry Cisneros. Before the break, I mentioned that you recently observed that HUD Secretary Julian Castro seems to be at the top of Hillary's list for vice presidential running mate. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, <laughs> I probably uh, misstated it a bit in the sense of Hillary Clinton's list, because I don't think there is a Hillary Clinton list at this point. I, I was fortunate enough to see Secretary Clinton yesterday, and while this subject didn't come up, this is very early in the contest, and I think she's concerned right now about getting the nomination and not at the point of looking at vice presidential prospects. But I think when the time comes, it is almost inevitable that Julian Castro's name will be on the short list because uh, he's very capable, uh, attractive, and articulate young man. Uh, proven governmental leader as a Latino really uh, emerges as uh, the top of the pyramid of qualified and capable Latinos in the country to be on a national ticket. Uh, So there's a lot of reasons why I do believe that in the final analysis, he'll be on a very, very short list, you know, of of people that make sense for her. But I think it's, it's probably too early to call it a short list that already exists, because I don't think it actually does. Well, you know, I'm not sure um, that doesn't help her to get the nomination. Well, she's going to get the nomination. But I mean, Julian Castro, that, that's, that is a, such a good balance, I think. Yeah, it really is. It, uh, it, 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 I mean, you can, and you age. even see the pictures of them together, and it looks <laughs> like a good balance. Age, it's balanced by male-female. It's mm-hmm. balanced uh, by uh, sort of mainstream traditional American and some of the, the new American attributes. It's balanced by geography. There's a lot of balance there that's very good. But um, I don't think she has to worry about getting the nomination, uh, you know, between the people who are already announced and not likely that others are, will, will yet announce. 
she, uh, I think she's in very good shape. Now, I believe a, a record, what, 24 million Latino citizens are eligible to vote, uh, were eligible to vote in the last presidential election. So common sense dictates that it, it'd be kind of difficult to win without winning that vote. Yet increasingly... Well, it's, actually, it's actually more than that. It I mean, isn't. It's, it's not... It, go ahead. I was going to say, increasingly, these polls are showing that that vote is very diversified and the idea that there's just this one big voting block sitting out there that can be rallied around some single issue like immigration reform is a bit of a myth. What do you think? Well, first, uh, you, you cited the numbers, and they're, they're very potent, but it's actually even more powerful than that because of where they're located. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fastest-growing states, some of the largest states, the Latino population is very influential, so you end up with decisive in California, very influential in states like Colorado and Arizona, obviously New Mexico, Texas, Florida, New York, a million Latinos in the Chicago area, so influencing the, uh, the, the direction of Illinois. And then swing states, like I mentioned Colorado already, but Virginia, where Latinos are growing more numerous. So while your point is true that there is diversity in the Latino community, in terms of political diversity, it's mostly just the Cuban population of Miami that can be called reliably Republican and leaning right. All of the other Latino groups, uh, Puerto Ricans in New York, Mexican-Americans in the Southwest, Central Americans, wherever they are, tend to be more geared to opportunity. They're at the lower rungs of the political ladder, of the economic ladder, and they're still looking for people who will articulate aspirational strategies. Now, when I say aspirational, I don't mean uh, uh, handouts. I don't mean uh, income maintenance and welfare. I'm talking about creating the conditions for educational opportunity, creating the conditions to be able to work and earn a, a fair wage, etc. This is a hardworking, future-oriented population with large families wanting the best uh, 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 of the American future and willing to work for it, pay taxes, sacrifice today for a better life tomorrow. And so that, that defines the Latino community as I know it in the United States, and, and I have no doubt about it. It's, it's going to be one of the really important drivers of the American future. I would say that, uh, again, any candidate that intends to win uh, will almost have to win uh, a large block of that vote. And it sounds to me what you're saying is that what the Latino community wants is they want the doors of opportunity opened up wider. That's not the same as a handout. Uh, and that's not the same as leniency. Uh, yeah. Uh, or, or, no, I, I, yeah. I, I wish Americans. I wish Americans could understand the culture of this population, because we'd have less fear and less, you know, kind of anxiety about immigration and so forth. If people understood these are hardworking people, uh, family oriented, tend to be religious, and 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 uh, ambitious about the future, willing to work today. And that, that's just the community. That's just the way it's made up. And it's, a, I think, a very positive thing. Um, the um, Republicans understand, a lot of them do, uh, the opportunity that is before them in the Latino community. President Reagan Certainly. once said to me personally, once said to me personally, uh, Latinos are natural Republicans. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> and, he made the, and he made the argument to me that I should consider you know, changing parties. Well, I, I wasn't going to do that, but I do know that on issues of entrepreneurship and small business, and and uh, uh, you know, w- a- a- wanting to to build for the future, Latinos are very family oriented and very very conservative in some ways. But the Republicans are not going to win them by uh, you know demonizing immigration, for example, because Latino families are torn apart by the present immigration system. Republicans have good candidates. They've got a good stable. Mm-hmm. Marco Rubio, uh, people like uh, the governor of, of New Mexico, Susana Martinez, people like the governor of Nevada, Brian Sandoval. If they, if they just tweak their positions enough to get right on immigration and issues like that, uh, 
they could they could run away with very substantial percentages of the Latino vote in the future. But right now they just are blinded on on on, on some of these issues, and it's to their great detriment. To their great detriment. Well, uh, it sounds like uh, Ronald Reagan made a play for you and didn't succeed. I suspect <laughs> others will come calling on your door as well. Ronald, Ronald Reagan did very well on his own understanding the Latino community. He, he's <laughs> yes, the person he who put together the last immigration reform we had in 1986. And I'm surprised at the number of Latinos who, though they you know, lean Democratic, love President Reagan because he was open-minded on immigration in the 1980s. Yes, and and he shared with them a culture of earning your way yeah, as you exactly. go. Um, now, we are almost out of time, but uh, do you have a website where listeners can go to stay current on your activities and also get more information on your book? Uh, I, I actually don't, uh, can't call offhand <laughs> my website. Okay, well, I do know it's uh, your book is on Amazon. Uh, now, where will they be able to keep up on your activities? Is somebody working on a Facebook page for you? You know what, I'll have to do that because I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm sort of, in terms of technology, nearly Neanderthal. I, you know, I still write every, all my speeches and, and, uh, and, and write all my, my, my work and so forth, but I, I need to I need to get there. There are a lot of people that are nodding their heads saying, me too, me too. Uh, Now, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have left today. But before we say goodbye, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Cisneros. You have a great program. You inform a lot of people all across the country. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. And if your station is leaving us after this first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Henry Cisneros, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And if you missed the full interview with Mr. Cisneros or any of our previous guests, remember you can download episodes of the Costa Report from our website at RebeccaCosta.com and also Apple iTunes, Podbean, and YouTube. And don't forget, you'll also find our weekly radio blog, at RebeccaCosta.com. The, the, the web address is easy to remember. It's myname.com. I don't know how we got that address, but we did. Uh, so stop by and check out the, uh, the blog. You'll, you'll really enjoy it. My guest next week is the one and only Mr. Ted Nugent. Uh, if you don't know him from his rock music and nail-biting reality shows, then you know him from his work with the National Rifle Association. He'll be here to tell us where the government should draw the lines on private ownership of weapons. So mark your calendars right now because you are not going to want to miss the Motor City Madman next week on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management